Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. The text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the first five verses. These are the words of God. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for the gospel about your Son. We thank you for the church. We thank you for how you've brought us here. I pray that your Spirit would make good use of this time in convicting us of our need to turn from our sin and turn to you on a daily basis. And Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when it comes to how we live our lives making our day-to-day choices, the world only becomes a tangled and complicated place if we are drifting lazily into a dark confusion wrought by sin. There is a complication that's not sinful, you know, theoretical physics. There, there, There are complicated things that are not a function of confusion. But when it's all tangled, when it gets all tangled up, that is almost always a question of sin, laziness, sloth, where we're, we are trying to do things our own way. So think about this for a moment. Keep everything simple. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Only two kinds of people. Sons of God and sons of the devil. There are two destinations, and only two, toward which everyone is heading, to one or the other. The resurrection of life or the resurrection of death. There are only two ways of living, clean or dirty. There are only two outcomes to all of our choices, and those outcomes are, on the one hand, wreckage of human, and on the other, glorified human. Wreckage of human on the one hand, glorified human on the other. There are only two gospels, one from the wisdom of man that will collapse underneath the weight of your sins, and one from the wisdom of God that will cause your sins to collapse beneath the weight of God's infinite grace. Two gospels, a true one and a false gospel. The false gospel collapses under the weight of your sins. With the true gospel, your sins collapse under the weight of God's grace. And there's only one message that will cut cleanly through everything, leaving you always with two alternatives. God's gospel, the message of grace, is a fog cutter. It just cuts through the fog, and all of a sudden you see before you saints and unbelievers. You see before you sons of the devil, sons of God. You see before you the way of life and the way of death. And that one message is is the only thing that can keep things clarified in that way. So let's consider our text. At the end of the previous chapter, at the end of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians, Paul had exalted in the scriptural standard of true pride, genuine pride, honorable pride. 
Let the one who boasts, he says, do so in the Lord. There he's riffing off of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Boasting is inescapable. God has created us in such a way that we will glory in something. We are creatures who are built to glorify. We are built, we are created to pursue glory. We cannot do anything but glorify. We're going to glorify, we're going to brag in, we're going to boast in something. It's an inescapable concept because it's not whether but which. It's not whether we will boast, but which thing we will boast in. It's not whether we will glory, it's which thing we will glory in. So, will we boast in the flesh or will we boast in the Spirit of God? Will we boast in the so-called wisdom of man or will we boast in the wisdom and knowledge of God? But we are going to boast in something. We are going to glory in something. We are going to exalt something. It's either going to be God or it's going to be self. Those are the only two ways to go, ultimately. So, having created that as the backdrop at the tail end of chapter 1, what does Paul do in the, first, in the opening of this um, passage? Paul then moves on to remind the Corinthians of something that they would do very well to remember. He had not come to them in his own name, in the strength of his own powers, or on his own authority. Rather, he declared to them the testimony or the witness of God. God witnessed to something, and Paul witnessed to the fact that God had witnessed to that. God testified to something, and Paul testified to God's testimony. So there you have it in verse 1. Paul is a witness to the witness. Paul is, a, uh, is a, a testifier to the testimony. He was a witness to the witness of God. He testified to the testimony of God. And so what was that divine testimony? Remember that God had spoken from heaven at the Lord's baptism in Matthew 3.17. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and God spoke from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son. That's God's testimony. This is my beloved son. And there was another time in John chapter 12 when Jesus was praying and Jesus prayed that God would glorify his name and the voice spoke from heaven. I have glorified it. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So God had spoken from heaven when Jesus had asked him to glorify his name. John 12, 28. God had arrayed Jesus in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're told about that in Mark chapter 9, verse 3. And in 2 Peter 1, 17 and 18, the end of Peter's life, he's still thinking back to that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was really something. God arrayed Christ in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Most profoundly, God manifested his darkest glory in the moment of the crucifixion, when Christ was lifted up on the cross. In John 12, 32, Christ says when he's lifted up, he's going to draw all men to himself. Why is, why is the cross going to have that drawing fascination? Why is the cross going to be such a fascinating object for the nations of men? Because God intended to glorify his name in that crucifixion in such a way as to bring about the redemption of countless millions. On top of that, Jesus was declared, it says in Romans 1.4, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. 
This is the testimony of God. At his baptism, this is my beloved son. I will glorify my, glorify my name in you when Christ asked him to glorify his name. In the Mount of Transfiguration, God testified. In the crucifixion, that was God's darkest testimony, but he testified to who Jesus was in that dark glory. And then he reverses everything and testifies that Jesus is the Son of God by his resurrection. That is the testimony of God. It reveals the wisdom of God. It reveals the character of God. It reveals the nature of God. Now, now here's a mystery. God is light, we're told. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's 1 John 1.5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And at the same time, the most profound revelation of the deepest wisdom of God was that moment of darkest glory on the cross. The God of light manifested dark glory on the cross. How so? The righteous made sinful, and the sinful made righteous, and all without any travesty on the holiness of God. The righteous made sinful. God, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Right? The righteous made sinful, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinful made righteous. And all in, done in such a way as Paul says in Romans, God wanted to be just and the one who justifies. God wanted to be just and the one who justifies. He could justify everybody, but then he becomes unjust. He could be just, but then everybody goes to hell. How, how does he reconcile these two things? He did it in this moment of dark glory on the cross. So Paul determined, he decided, he judged, the word is crino, He's, it's sort of like a solemn judicial judgment. Paul had settled in his mind that he would know nothing among the Corinthians except Christ and him crucified. Verse 2, Paul's presence in Corinth was not that of some flashy mojo dude exuding all his surplus charisma, radiating charm. That's not how Paul came to Corinth. Paul did not come to Corinth as a, as a shiny showboat preacher. Not at all. He came, he says in verse 3, he says he came in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. In weakness, fear, and trembling. Verse 3. If you wanted to find something to criticize, there would no doubt be something to criticize. If you wanted to find fault with something he had done or said, you could probably find it. His words and his preaching, he says, were not dependent upon a flattering persuasiveness that naturally arises from sophistry. Those who, for those who want to be flattered, man's wis wisdom, the Greek word for wisdom is sophia, will always do the trick. Man's wisdom will always do the trick for those who love flattery. Rather, instead of such sophistry, there was in Paul's life and in Paul's demeanor a proof of the spirit and power, verse 4. So even though he came with weakness, fear, and trembling, his presence was powerful, but it wasn't the power of a showboating preacher man. It wasn't the power of someone who was depending upon his own eloquence. So the basic alternative is therefore presented to you. Your faith will either be in the wisdom of man or it will be in the power of God. Verse 5. It's either the wisdom of man or the power of God. It will either be in the power of man, 
which is weak, impotent, helpless, and frail, or it will be in the wisdom of God, which is profound, eternal, infinite, and deep. So the choice is stark, man's way or God's way. And that power which was displayed by God is encapsulated in the message of Christ and him crucified. That message is packed into, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That wisdom overthrows all the wisdom of man. The wisdom of God in that message topples the wisdom of man. Well, let's talk about sophistry for a minute. I've used that, that term a n- number of times. A sophist in the ancient world, a sophist was someone whose eloquence was absolutely untethered to the truth. Unt- it had no connection with the truth. He would come to you and say, you want me to argue your case? Uh, you, want, you want me to speak on your behalf? What do, you, what do you want me to argue? And I'll come up with some plausible, shiny, bright, compelling argument for that thing, and I don't care if it's true or not. That was a sophist. A sophist is someone who was disconnected from the objective world of absolute fact, absolute truth. So that kind of sophistry, when Paul is attacking the wisdom of man, that's the kind of thing he is attacking. So contrary to the popular assumption, Paul's contrast here is between the power of the cross, uh, his contrast here is between the power of the cross and the enticing words of carnal wisdom, and that contrast is not a contrast between eloquence as such and inelegant truth over on the other side. It's not like you've got eloquence over here and some sort of stammering, halting approach to the truth over there. This is a fallen world, And there are always sophists who want to substitute human eloquence for divine wisdom, which is absurd. They want to replace divine wisdom with human wisdom, and that is the absurdity. That is what the ancient sophists wanted to do, and that is what their relativistic postmodern descendants in our era also want to do. There are many today who want to say that what people say doesn't have any real truth value, philosophers, there's a a debate between the correspondence view of truth and the coherence view of truth. The correspondence view of truth says there's the watch on the pulpit, and that means the statement there's a watch on the pulpit is true if there's a correspondence between that statement and a watch actually being on the pulpit. The coherence view of truth is the sophist uh, approach. The coherence view of truth says all all it has to do is be an internally coherent narrative and then it can be your truth. It doesn't have to match up with any standards or any objective reality on the outside. That coherence coherence view of truth is pure and simple sophistry. Uh, Someone who's arguing with you honestly is using the the, uh, propositions that he states in a way that expects them to line up with the way it actually is out in the world. So when Paul says, if we of of all men are most to be pitied if Christ didn't rise from the dead. He is saying that statement, Christ rose from the dead, has to match an actual resurrection outside Jerusalem in Palestine 2,000 years ago. It has to point to that, and that thing actually has to have happened. In other words, it's the correspondence view of truth. So sophists want to snip all the wires. They want to snip all the things that connect are talking from the way things actually are. 
They, they want it to be your truth, my truth, everybody's truth. Oh, that's true for you. You know that you live in a relativistic era when you've heard that expression, oh, that's true for you. Oh, I'm glad for you. I'm happy for you. I became a Christian. All my sins are forgiven. Jesus rose from the dead. I'm happy for you. What? If he rose from the dead, if he, if he rose from the dead, then that applies to you too. If he didn't rise from the dead, then I'm delusional, right? I'm, my sins aren't really gone. My, I'm not really set free. Why are you happy for me? You're only happy for me because you've been, uh, you've been blinded by the sophistry of our age, which is the same sophistry that was current in Paul's era. So the error is to think that the message of the cross needs to be adorned by human wisdom first, and then second, as the deterioration progresses, as it advances a bit, that the truth of the cross, the message of the cross, needs to be reinforced or supplemented by human wisdom. And then in the last stage, at the last analysis, it needs to be replaced by human wisdom. The first stage, the message of the cross, is thought to be true, but ugly and unadorned. Right. Yes, it's true, but if you talk that way, people are going to think you're a fundamentalist. If you talk that way, people are going to find it off-putting. If you just say that Jesus, uh, that you're a sinner and that Jesus died for sinners and that he was buried, he rose again from the dead, and if you just say it that way, then people are going to be offended. So we need to adorn it. We need to sugarcoat it. We need to make it nicer. We need to make, we need to make it more um, user-friendly. We need to we need to decorate it. We need to adorn it. So that's the first stage. Adorn the gospel. The, the, the gospel is assumed to be true but ugly, and we need to bring human wisdom to adorn it. The second stage, it's assumed to be true as far as it goes, but it's inadequate. It needs to be supplemented by truths from psychology, or it needs to be supplemented by things, what we've learned in, in uh, the scholarship of our age. It needs to be supplemented by what our philosophers have discovered. So it's true as far as it goes, but we need to supplement. That's the second stage. And by the time you get to the third stage, and just a, a spoiler alert, our culture is f f completely head, head, uh, headlong into this third stage. By the time you get to the third stage, the message of the cross is thought to be false, harmful, pernicious, racist, misogynist, and homophobic. That's where the, the gospel is a mess. That's just bad. All right? You can still have a Bible that you have on the shelf. You can still have a Bible uh, in your logo at your church, but you better not preach from it because if you preach from it, you're a sexist. If you preach from it, you're a hater. If you preach from it, hate, and, and we all know that hate is not a family value. So, and so where did this family value came, come from? It came from our culture. And so you see, first we began by the gospel being adorned. Secondly, the gospel needed to be supplemented. And then third, the, the sinful heart of man replaces the gospel entirely. So that, if that's the case, if that's the case, what is the role of human eloquence in preaching the gospel? What is, the, is there an appropriate role for human eloquence in preaching the gospel? It's actually what Paul is demonstrating here in this passage. The words of the preacher, like the preacher himself, must be a bond servant, a bond slave to the message. And the words of eloquence, if they are to be true and not false, 
must be driven before the gale of good news that is our gospel all sails out. That means that the preacher must be sold out to the gospel and the gospel must control him. He doesn't control the gospel. And whatever eloquence he has has to be absolutely subservient to the doctrine, the message, the content of the gospel. The trireme of Christ is a ship of true liberty, and every true preacher of the gospel is chained to his oar. In other words, there is going to be no message of liberty preached to the slaves of sin unless the preachers of the gospel are themselves slaves to the text, slaves to the message. This is how Paul begins many of his letters. Paul, doulos, a servant, a bondservant. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, and being a slave of Jesus Christ means you're not the slave of the world, and if you're not the slave of the world, you are adopted as a son. You're the slave that becomes a son. So take the most striking sentence from this passage and ponder it for a minute. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that is elegantly stated. That is eloquence. It is most eloquent. I, I resolved, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a sentence that packs a punch. Paul did not deliberately stammer something halting and ungrammatical, like I thought um, that I shouldn't uh, try to speechify about any other doctrines. He didn't do that. No, Paul was eloquent here, but his eloquence, like the man himself, was a bondservant to the message. The eloquence, there was no question about who was in charge. It was Christ and him crucified in charge of this whole operation. That's the dominating principle. That's the dominating truth. That's what we must get to. That's what, that's what we must affirm. So there's a place for eloquence, but the eloquence is always in a position of servitude. And it'd be better to be halting and stammering in your preaching and be preaching the truth faithfully than to be eloquent and preaching lies, right? Obviously. Um, obviously, again and again and again. And there are times when Paul trips on himself. You know, there's a sentence in Ephesians that he never finishes. You know, he, he's, and it's a run-on sentence too. <laughs> so he's, he's going and going and going, and then he gets distracted, and then he never comes back around. And someone's going to say, isn't that an imperfection in the Bible? No. Because we don't have, we don't have a, 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 what do you call them? We don't have a handbook of form that we hold the Bible up next to and say, this must conform to that. This is the perfect standard. This is the way it's supposed to be. We are supposed to be slaves of the message so that we can preach liberty. We need to be slaves of the gospel so that we can preach liberty to those who are slaves to sin. Now, it would be a grotesque mistake to say that Christians should talk about nothing but a truncated message that consists of a mantra like, Christ died on the cross, delivered in a monotone, Christ died on the cross, and that all other topics are to be avoided as somehow sub-spiritual. No, far from exulting in the cross, such an approach would actually minimize and insult the doctrine of the cross. 
I grew up in a tradition that had, we have the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of every service, but I grew up in a tradition where there was an invitation given at the conclusion of every service. And this was part of the revivalist tradition. And when the revivalist tradition began, there were a lot of people that needed, needed saving, and that's how this thing started. But it, what, where did it wind up? Well, it wound up by every Sunday you would gather all the Christians in town, you gather all the Christians and assemble them in church, you would explain to them how to become a Christian, and then you would give them an opportunity to become a Christian. And they would come down front, or they could rededicate their life, or they could join the, join the church. But it was a gospel pitch, and it was, Christ died for you, Christ died for sinners, you must become a Christian, and, and here's the invitation to do so. The problem with that is, and if you said, why do you do that? Why do you tell all the Christians how to become Christians? It's like it's like having all the people who have a certain insurance policy having a weekly meeting and trying to get them to buy the insurance. Or the people who've already bought your product, you, you gather them all together periodically and try to get them to sign up. They already, they already signed up. If you ask them, why are you doing that? The answer almost certainly would be, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a mistake, I believe. I become convinced it's a mistake, but it's an honorable mistake because that's a very important passage in the Bible. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. There's a sense in which every church service every week ought to be about nothing but Christ and him crucified. Now that, that is a non-negotiable. Paul said, how many things did Paul teach the Corinthians, right? We've got two full letters from him, but he says somehow Somehow, some way, everything I was talking to you about was revolving around that center. Because Christ is the founder of a new humanity, and because his founding obedience is what he did on the cross. The founding obedience of the new humanity is what Jesus did on the cross. This means that absolutely everything that men and women do from forecasting the weather to changing diapers, from sailing a ship to digging a well, from driving a car to teaching a class, all of those activities and any other activity there may be falls under the shaping authority of Christ's death and resurrection. The cross was not just one more event in a world filled with lots of other events. It was not simply another datum, which some people believe and others don't. Rather, the cross was a new organizing principle under which all things would be made new, Revelation 21.5. When Christ says in Revelation, all, behold, I make all things new, how, how did he do that? He did that by dying on the cross. He did that when he established the new humanity in his death and resurrection. The Latin word for cross is crux. And the death of Jesus on the cross is the crux of all human history. It's the crux of your life. It's the crux of everything we do. It's the crux of all our worship. The death of Jesus on the cross is the crux of all human history. When we, and, and we don't forget the resurrection, we don't forget the ascension. All of this is tied together at the, at the crossing. All of this is tied together at the moment of Christ's death. As, as we say every week, as often as you... Um, as often as we partake of the Lord's table, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? We're, we are commemorating the death of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. 
not forgetting his resurrection. The only reason we're able to celebrate his death is because he rose. But, but the death is the center. So, this means you should be able to talk about absolutely anything in the world and within a short space of time find yourself talking about the death of Jesus and all without changing the subject. Right? You need to be able to talk about how the mariners are doing. You need to be talking about the ditch you want to dig. You need to be able to talk about how to repair the sewing machine and you're talking with a friend and as you're talking, because you live in an integrated world, because you live in a new world that's established, that was established by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can find yourself talking about the death of Jesus and you didn't change the subject to get there. For many Christians, you've got this spiritual department. This is how you get your soul saved. And this is Christ died for our sins. And then all the ordinary life out there runs on, this, on the principles that the non-believers say it runs on. So that's the secular world, and here's the spiritual world. So you're talking to your friend about how the mariners are doing. You're talking to your friend about your software coding or whatever. And then in order to witness to him, what do you have to do? You have to lurch, right? How about those mariners? Hey, are you interested in spiritual things? Do you read much? Do you, you, you know? You have to say, stop, change the subject, and lurch over here. But there's a, Christ's death is the cornerstone of this new building we're all inhabiting. We live, we live in a world that cannot be the way the old world was. We cannot ever go back to Babylon. We can never go back to Persia. We can never go back to ancient Rome. And the reason we cannot is we're living in a world in which a man has come back from the dead. And he was crucified for our sins, and he came back from the dead. This is a world in which a man has been raised from the dead. And that means we can't get the, we can't get the new world that's taking shape back into the box. It's happening. It's going to happen. It's happening inexorably. And this new building that we're living in, there's the cornerstone is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cornerstone of that building is who Jesus is and what he did. And so if you walk around in the building you're living in, if you, all you have to do is walk around in it, you're going to come to the cornerstone. See, there it is. And we didn't change the subject. I was just giving you a tour of the house, right? I was just showing you how everything is connected. This wall is connected to that wall. It's connected to the foundation. And look, it's connected to the cornerstone. Everything connects to the cornerstone. This is how we can get from what, wherever we are to the death of Jesus without changing the subject. Now, the message is a straightforward one. We preach the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We declare first who he is. He is the divine son of almighty Jehovah. He is Yahweh with us. He is himself fully divine, and he entered forever into our human condition through the incarnation. He is the apostle of God sent to man and he's the high priest of the new humanity gone before us into heaven in order to ensure our safe arrival there. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he did this so that all of his people, citizens of the new Israel, could be represented by that obedience. And because they had all been disobedient before his authoritative word gathered them, he represented them also by bending his head submissively underneath all the wrath that a holy God could muster in order to pour out upon him. In that moment of dereliction 
on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord Jesus was struck and was struck hard by the fist of God. God poured out his wrath on Jesus in that moment. And Jesus took it as a dutiful son. And he did not murmur against his father. He discussed it in the garden with him. God, is there any way to have to do this? Is there any other way to do this? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so when God was going to strike him, Jesus had his arms nailed, uh, nailed to the cross and he took the blow. He took the blow without complaint. He took the blow without murmuring. It was still my God, my God. He was still quoting scripture. And a moment later when he surrendered in death, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted God through the whole thing. When God was striking him, and, and think about this, look through all the Old Testament. If you want to know something about the wrath of God, look at the flood that wiped out the, the antediluvian world, sparing only Noah and seven others. Look at the flood. Look at the devastation rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at what the prophet Nahum said was going to happen to the wicked city of Nineveh, a generation, uh, 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 a century after Jonah's time. Look at what happened to Babylon, the great Babylon, now a haunt of owls and jackals, a desolate place. God knows how to pour out his wrath. Take all those instances of wrath, take every instance of wrath in the Old Testament that you can find and gather it all up and put it into one fist and have that fist strike Jesus. So why? Why? In the following moment of ultimate vindication, the moment that Jesus knew by faith was coming, three days later, that same hand of God, not a different hand, not a different God, that same hand of God raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand, where there's an everlasting river of pleasure. Jesus, before he passed through the valley of the shadow of death, saw it for what it was. Before he walked the paths of the dead, he considered the joy that was set before him. Having done so, he endured the cross, Hebrews says. Having done so, he, Jesus, poured out his contempt and his scorn on the shame that he was about to go through. And he received the wrath of God as your representative. Bringing it down to the point, why did he do this? He did it not to put too fine a point on it because of his intention to purchase you from your self-absorption. He wanted to buy you from your self-pity. He wanted to buy you from your self-righteousness. He wanted to buy you from your sense of self entirely. He wanted to liberate you from you. He wanted to liberate you from your own tangled web of confusion. He lived a life of perfect obedience in our stead. And with our name on that obedience, he went through a hell of exquisite suffering in our stead, also with our name on it. He rose from the dead in a flash of unconquerable and everlasting victory, again in our stead. And as surely as Adam represented you when he plunged the entire race into misery and darkness, so also the last Adam represented you when he walked out into the light of eternal day. You were always, just like it, boasting is necessary, so also it is always necessary for you to be in an atom. You are always necessarily carried by an atom. The question is, which one? 
either the old Adam carries you out into the outer darkness and abandons you there, either the old Adam carries you out into the darkness and leaves you there, or the new Adam picks you up and carries you back into the fold. Isaiah, <coughs> excuse me, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11 says, He shall feed his, feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Now, this gospel, this message, is to be declared to every creature. Matthew 16, 15. And the creatures who are to hear this message are creatures who are lost in their sins. Who gave, Galatians 1, 4 says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. The gospel is good news, but there are two kinds of good news. The first is a bolt from the blue good news, which does not require any sort of antecedent difficulty. You get news that a distant relative that you didn't even know existed has died and left you a legacy of millions of dollars and, and blessings on you, and all of a sudden you get the get the letter from the attorney, and that's good news, and you didn't need to understand anything before that. It's just a bolt from the blue. Good news. But the second kind of good news, e.g. a pardon from the governor the day before your execution, is a type of news that requires a full apprehension of an earlier delivery of bad news. Now, news that, that they've discovered, for example, a cure for cancer, is going to strike a man who has cancer quite differently than it will strike a man who's entirely healthy. This is good news, but you have to know that you're a mess. This is good news, but you have to know about the sin part. This is good news, but it's only good news for sinners. And so, in the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, what do we have? He determined that men, women, and children are delivered by means of this gospel when they, by the grace of God, do two things— and even these two things that we must do are themselves a gift from God, lest any man boast, as it says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We must first turn away from our sins, and secondly, we must believe the gospel. These two actions may be performed in one single, solitary motion of turning. If you turn away from sin, really and genuinely, then you are in that same motion, turning to Christ. It's not possible to turn from sin really without turning to Christ. And it's not possible to turn, <coughs> excuse me, to the genuine Christ without simultaneously in that same motion turning from sin. Acts 3.19, repent ye therefore and be converted. The word converto is the Latin word for turn. So I turn around. If you're converted, you're turning around. So repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Repent and be converted. Why? Why should you repent and be converted? So that your sins may be blotted out, gone, done, forgotten. You never have to think about them again. So that you're, what, the whole genius of this, the whole design of this, is to liberate a people, to bring them into a new kingdom where they never, ever have to think about anything that they've done in the past that has offended God. 
It is gone. It is dealt with. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That's good news. So, what is your condition? What is your condition here today? What is your sad state here today? Porn junkie? Are you a porn junkie? Are you a selfish high school girl who has her parents totally whipped and baffled? How about an embezzler? Are you an embezzler? Are you a malicious and petty backbiter? How about a manipulator? Do you always know how to lean in the canoe in such a way as to get your own way? You know, you, do you know how to manipulate people around you? Do you know how to fake it until you get what you want? How about a liar? Are you a liar? Do you tell lies? Pharisee, that's a good one. Are you, are you acutely aware of everybody else's sins? Are you an angry husband? Are you an angry husband? Let me ask that again. Are you an angry husband? How about a lazy wife? Are you a lazy wife? Are you a foul-mouthed pervert? Are you an envious snarker? Are you a shoplifter? Are you... All right. Now, let me assure you of something. We are human beings, and we do it all. all right? We're human beings, and we do it all. We are people, and nobody fouls their own nest like we do. We are people, and nobody messes it up the way we do. Not only do we do it all, but those who are involved in counseling and pastoral help have seen it all. all right? They've seen people do horrendous things to one another. And they've seen, they see that outside the church, and they see that inside the church. And inside the church, it just has that extra hypocrisy glaze over the, over the top of it. Because you are, in the main, a church-going people, this means that if sin has you by the throat, if you're in, the de in desperate need of this particular message of grace, goodness, and gospel, it may be that you've turned church into your very own deadly trap. You may well have been maneuvered by your own selfishness. This is not God's design for the church. This is not the way the church is intended to work, but many people have turned it this way. You may well have been maneuvered by your own selfishness, not by God's design, but by yours, into that false position where you smile and sing psalms with all the people that you don't know very well and don't care about that much, but the people you love the most, well, they get your worst. They get all the, they get all the gunk. The people you love, the people who are dearest to you, they get all the gunk, and all the people here get the smile and praise the Lord stuff. Wretched man. Who can deliver us from this? Who can deliver us from this just a weekend? And how many of your New Year's resolutions have you already broken? We are people and we do it all, right? We do it all. So what is the message that I have for you? Uh, you thought earlier you were saying that this was a gospel message and I was feeling pretty good there for a minute. But how can, how can this be good news when it's such a downer? What is the message I have for you? What message is here that is of the sort that makes no sense to the carnal heart, but which will nevertheless deliver your carnal heart? Look away from that sin. Turn away from it. In the power of Christ, who is present here today, he is present here today, turn so that that sin can see nothing but your back. 
and then flee to Christ so that if the sin is still staring at your back, it is getting smaller and smaller. Flee to Christ. I'm telling you, with the authority of Jesus Christ himself, that you are invited to do this thing. You are invited to flee to him. But the only way this works is when you look to Christ. There is a way of despising sin that still looks at it. There's a way of despising sin, and I'll put air quotes, scare, air, air quotes, scare quotes around it, despising sin that still looks at it. There's a way of despising sin that's still focused on the sin. There's a way of despising sin that still seeds it power. There is such a thing as a Christless repentance, which might be better known as 10 minutes of feeling bad about something. It's not really repentance. Christless repentance is not repentance. But you can be sorry about your state, <coughs> and you can be sorry tomorrow, and sorry the day after that, and eventually, if you keep it up, you can die in that sorrow. And then you will sink down into that sorrow forever. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief, sorrow, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a sorrow that does not lead away from death, but, rather, but which rather is death. There is a sorrow which is just more sinning. The gospel brings a sharp contrast. There is a godly grief, a godly sorrow, a godly repentance, which leads to what? Salvation and no regrets. Not only are you invited to never think about that sin again, not only, you know, you did that thing in high school, you did that thing in college, you did that thing earlier in your marriage, you did that thing. Not only are you invited to not ever think about that thing again, you are commanded never to think about it again. You must turn away. You don't, you don't leave that broken thing on the floor and hover over it feeling bad about it. That's a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow fusses over the problem and then comes back and fusses over it some more and then fusses over it some more. You can be sorry today and sorry tomorrow. Die sorry. So repentance means no regrets. Repentance means turning away. Look at something else. And that something else, or rather that someone else, is Christ impaled on a tree outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That is your only hope. That is your only forgiveness. That is your only salvation. And by Christ, I mean a twisted bronze snake on a pole. I mean a rock in the wilderness with living water flowing out of it. I mean bread from heaven falling out of the sky. I mean the lamb in the midst of the throne I mean the one who holds the keys to both death and Hades. I mean the one struck by the fist of God. God hated your sin so much that he balled it all up and struck his beloved son so that you could hear this message today and be free so that your sins might be blotted out, so that you might walk away, so that you might walk away with a clean conscience. So you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be a fusser. You don't have to be a moralist. You don't have to be a Pharisee. You don't have to scurry around trying to fix anything. It's all done. It's all fixed. And our, our 
task of sanctification is learning how to walk in the light of this glorious justification. So I mean the one struck by the fist of God and the one who was raised three days later for your justification by that same hand. This is your grace. This is your glory. This is your gospel. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for all that you've given us. I pray that you give us a better understanding of what you have given to us in the grace of Christ, in the message of the cross. Amen. You may be seated. Responsible parents put the power tools, strong drinks, firearms, and toxic cleaning supplies out of the reach of our little ones. We kid-proof our homes as much as possible. And ironically, but ironically, we buy them still. We buy them toy power tools, cap guns, and pretend cleaning supplies. We don't hand them a bottle of whiskey and say, knock yourself out, Junior. But we give them some apple juice and a shot glass, and they'll pretend to be oh-so-grown-up. It's striking, however, that while it's good and right to kid-proof our homes, God doesn't kid-proof his home. This table isn't us pretending to partake of Christ. We are really partaking of him. We are God's children, and our Father hands us something far more potent than any chop saw, Lysol, AK-47, or Jack Daniels you have at home, and tells us to partake. This isn't plastic Jesus, pretend Jesus, or pseudo-Jesus. Our Father gives us the real thing. He doesn't water it down or buy that cheap knockoff version. The reason we kid-proof our homes is so that our children are best taken care of. And God cares for us by giving us undiluted gospel. The best thing for a child of God is to feel the prick of conviction, the warning against sin, the comfort of the gospel, the potent kick of Christ indwelling and enthroned. This bread and wine packs quite the punch, and our Father wants the full dosage for his children. So come and welcome to Jesus. Father God, thank you for hitting us square between the eyes with the potency of your gospel. We are grateful that you feed us and nourish us with nothing other than your Son, our Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we give thanks, and amen. Amen. The charge is this. Uh, You need to form the habit of preaching this gospel to yourself over and over, repeatedly, continually, habitually. Meditate upon it, think about it, believe it, apply it, share it with your friends and family. Uh, Because if you don't preach this gospel to yourself, Satan will be happy to preach half the gospel to you. He'll He'll either preach... Oh, you're a good-for-nothing slime bucket who can never do any good. God would never love you. He comes as the accuser. On the other side, he'll come to puff you up and say, Oh, you're such a good, godly boy. Let me pinch your cheeks. No, God can never find any sin in you. So preach the gospel to yourself. You need to preach the full gospel to yourself daily. You're a guilty sinner, but Christ has reconciled you. You are loved by God, but not for your own goodness. It's grace alone by which you're saved. Now hear the blessing of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.